You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So hey, if you have your Bibles, if you will go to Matthew chapter 4, as you, uh, as you wait for that, heard this story about a woman who had tickets to uh, Super Bowl 45. It was located on the 50-yard line. Now, for those who don't know, it was the Green Bay Packers versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, as she sits down, a man comes down from the nosebleed section and asks if anyone is sitting next to her. And she says, no, this seat is empty. And this, and it's incredible, this man said. He says, I can't believe it. Who in their right mind would have a seat like this for the Super Bowl and not use it? She said, well, actually, this seat belongs to me. I was supposed to come with my husband, but he passed away. This is the first Super Bowl that Green Bay has played and that we haven't watched together since we got married in 1965. The man said, oh, I'm so sorry, that's, that's terrible, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I bet that was something sitting at the 50-yard line in 66, 67, and 96. Sure was, she said. Well, couldn't you find someone else, a friend, a relative, or even a neighbor to take this empty seat? And the woman shook her head and said, no, 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 they're, they're all at the funeral. This woman is a real Green Bay Packers fan, right? And chances are we are all fans of something, like sports, TV shows, hobbies, something. Now in Matthew chapter 4, we're introduced to a storyline in the big gospel story of Matthew that takes shape over time. And this is how it begins. Aaron led us through it in the big idea, but let's read it together. Matthew chapter 4 verse 18. As Jesus walked alongside the Galilee Sea, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, throwing fishing nets into the sea because they were fishermen. Come follow me, he said, and I'll show you how to fish for people. Right away, they left their nets and followed him. Continuing on, he saw another set of brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, repairing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Verse 23. Jesus traveled through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. He announced the good news of the kingdom. I want to say that again. He announced the good news of the kingdom. And he healed every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread throughout Syria. People brought to him all those who had various kinds of diseases. Those in pain, those possessed by demons, those with epilepsy, those who were paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis. Now real quick, let me pause. The Decapolis is ten cities in the Galilean region. So the Decapolis is 10 cities. So people followed him, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from the areas beyond the Jordan River. Wow, what a following. So now we remember that where we are, right? We remember where we are in Matthew's story about Jesus. Matthew tells us that Jesus is going through Galilee and this 10-city region called Decapolis, proclaiming God's kingdom in himself. Right, this territory, this territory we find Jesus in, places him in the company of a mixed group of Jews, Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, immigrants, and others that make up the diverse region of Galilee. Make sure you file that away. Now, Matthew told us earlier that the kingdom Jesus announces and preaches is a kingdom that requires repentance. This 
turning away from all other allegiances and turning toward allegiance to God's kingdom. Repentance requires this training called discipleship. So we should not be surprised at this point that Matthew wants us to know that Jesus calls his disciples, his first disciples. And what we see is that Jesus doesn't call his first disciples from among the elites and the powerful, the well-educated and well-respected, but rather he calls fishermen, the blue-collar working-class folk of the day. And he begins with four men from two families, Peter and Andrew and James and John. If you look at the text, when he calls them, they are all at work. And in both accounts, we're told that they, quote, immediately. Everybody say immediately. They immediately leave their boats and nets behind to follow him. Matthew tells us specifically that James and John even leave their dad. Now, this small storyline of the disciples' call to follow Jesus is Matthew's way of signaling to us the kind of sacrifices the disciples will have to make in order to follow Jesus if they are to experience the fullness of the life he invites them to receive. They have to be willing to turn away from anything because the kingdom Jesus announces requires a transformation in everything. And we know that Jesus' kingship, his power and his way of life isn't fully understood or even fully seen until his crucifixion. Like, it will take new eyes and ears to see and hear the truth Jesus embodies and preaches through the cross. Which may be why Matthew doesn't hesitate in reminding us throughout the story that Jesus' disciples really struggle to understand and fully see what Jesus is up to. But they keep on following, even at great cost. Now, let's step back and let's look at the story from a bigger view. Matthew uses this storyline to draw contrast between the disciples on one hand and the crowds that are attracted to Jesus on the other. And it could be why, I think, he, call, he, he directly uh, moves into the call of the disciples and after that directly tells us that Jesus travels throughout Galilee to teach in synagogues, proclaim good news, and heal people suffering from diseases and demons. And we're told right here and even throughout all of Matthew's gospel that these great crowds follow him and as he draws people from all over the span of ten cities called Decapolis and others, we're told that the crowds are in awe of Jesus, right? And they give voice. Even they're quoted as giving voice to their amazement at their teaching, but but in the end, Matthew tells us that these same crowds will be the ones to shout, let him be crucified. See, here in the beginning of Matthew's story, we see him letting us in on what is required if we're to be followers of Jesus rather than fans of Jesus. See, Matthew, Matthew introduces us to the fans of Jesus. A fan can be an enthusiastic admirer close enough to Jesus to get the benefits, but not close enough to require the sacrifice. Fans don't mind making adjustments in their life as long as Jesus doesn't turn their life upside down, like asking them to let go of certain things. They don't mind Jesus touching up their life as long as he doesn't renovate or make too many demands. The tragedy of the fan is that they believe they are followers, but prove to be fickle in time 
especially when something they love is threatened, like love of country or rights or economics or the privilege of personal freedoms or material goods. The saddest part is that fans cannot be convinced they are fans. They'll just call you judgmental. But who they are is eventually revealed. If I'm simply a fan of Jesus, my actions will be my judge. And in the disciples, Matthew introduces us to followers. See, they will allow Jesus to make major adjustments in their life, even if he wants to turn their lives upside down. They may struggle along the way. Everybody say struggling. And they may not even fully get what Jesus is doing, but they keep on following. They commit to keep on trusting Him. As Matthew unfolds his story, we can see the difference between fans and followers. Sadly, when we look around today, we can see the same. Beloved, understanding the difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus is important. What we are, fan or follower, is revealed by the kind of life we produce. It is revealed by our allegiances and priorities, by what we are willing to fight for or fight over, and the prices we're willing to pay in the process. I'm reminded of this father whose daughter had walked away from faith. They approached their pastor for prayer and counsel. During this long and painful conversation, the father said something that struck the pastor, yet sounded all too familiar. The father said, We raised her in the church, but we realize now we did not raise her in Christ. For too long in my life, I was more just a fan of Jesus than a follower. I went to church every time the doors were open, even when I was hungover from the night before. For me, a life of partying filled with drugs and alcohol was just too important too important to give over to Jesus' Lordship. And don't get me wrong. Now, I prayed every night. Mostly, I didn't want to go to hell if I didn't wake up. But I prayed every night for forgiveness. I read Scripture from time to time and probably could quote enough Scripture to win like Bible Jeopardy. And in the end, I was raised in the church, but somehow missed Christ. And I made choices that reflected it. It wasn't until a profound crisis in my life in my early 20s that I was left with nothing but pain, shame, and depression. And that's when I realized the presence and love of Jesus. It's when I realized He wanted more than acts of obedience when it was convenient for me. He wanted more than weekend visits. He wanted all of me because that's how I would come to truly experience all of Him. And it took everyone else leaving me for me to understand. Because when everyone else left me, Jesus never did, even when I spent years wandering far from him. See, what I learned in my early 20s is that followers walk the talk, but fans talk more than walk. Followers trust Jesus as their leader. Fans trust only when it benefits them and look for other leaders that do. Followers want a vision for their life. Fans want a spiritual pep rally for their life. Followers stick around even when they are offended. Fans leave when they are offended. Followers learn to ask, what have I done for you? 
Fans usually ask, what have you done for me lately? Followers are in for the long term. Fans are in it for the short term. I was a fan. I hope I'm learning to be a follower. In 320 AD, the Emperor Licinius ruled the east of Rome. And the Roman governor stood resolutely before the 40 Roman soldiers of what was known as the Thundering Legions. And he said, I command you to make an an offering to the Roman gods. If you will not, you'll be stripped of your military status. The 40 soldiers all believed firmly in the Lord Jesus. They knew they must not deny him or sacrifice to the Roman idols no matter what the governor threatened to do. So Comdidus spoke for the legion and he said, Nothing is dearer or greater honor to us than Christ our God. The governor hearing this tried other tactics to get them to deny their faith. First he offered the money. Then he offered imperial honors. When that didn't work, he just threatened them with torments and torture with the rack and with fire. Commodus looked at him and replied, You offer us money that remains behind and glory that fades away. You seek to make us friends of the emperor, but alienate us from the true king. We desire one gift, the crown of righteousness. We love honors, those of heaven. You threaten fearful torments and call our godliness a crime, but you will not find us faint-hearted or attached to this life or easily stricken with terror. For the love of God, we are prepared to endure any kind of torture. And as you'd imagine, the governor was enraged and he wanted him to die a slow, painful death. So all of them were stripped naked and herded to the middle of a frozen lake and he set soldiers to guard them to prevent any of them coming to shore and from escaping. And the 40 Christ-following soldiers encouraged each other as they were going into battle once again, except one for their own lives. How many of our companions in arms fell on the battlefront showing themselves loyal to an earthly king, one asked. Is it possible for us to fail to sacrifice our life and faithfulness to the true king? Let us not turn aside, O warriors, let us not turn our backs in flight from the devil. And so they spent the night courageously bearing the pain and rejoicing in the hope of soon being with the Lord. And to increase the torment of the Christians, baths of hot water were put in the lake. And with these, the governor hoped to weaken the firm resolve of these freezing men. And he told them, you may come ashore when you're ready to deny your faith. In the end, one of them did weaken, came off the ice, and got into the warm bath. When one of the guards on the shore saw him desert them, he himself took the place of the traitor. Surprising everyone with the suddenness of his conversion, he threw off his clothes and ran to join the naked ones on the ice, crying out loudly, I am now a Christian. It's an old story of our faith. It teaches us followers seek courage. Even in the midst of struggle, followers are resolved. But it's when followers gather with other followers that they can find a sense of renewed courage and resolve. We don't find that on our own. 
They become participants in the movement of God that sweeps through society. So, so let's go back to something Matthew wrote earlier. By naming the Decapolis as Jesus' first territory of announcing God's kingdom, Matthew's showing us that Jesus is purposefully choosing to begin his work in a mixed group of Jews, Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, immigrants, and others that make up this diverse region. A movement of divine love began by sweeping through Galilee, and it was a verb kind of love, one of actions and words. It was a love disclosed in Jesus, demonstrated by Jesus, and declared through Jesus. Jesus is the promised Redeemer King of Israel, as prophesied in Scripture, and Matthew tells us that this divine movement of love embodied in the person of Jesus will lead him to be crowned but with thorns at his death, crowned with glory at his resurrection, and crowned as Lord of all at his ascension. Jesus is God made flesh and puts skin on love and then invites us to follow him into a love that ignites and sustains movements. Kingdom announcement of Jesus, and it's called a repentance, brothers and sisters, created social transformation then, and it can now. So when Jesus is followed by a community of followers, and not just admired by them, they become a prophetic community of truth that, by the power of the Spirit, can embody the words and actions of Jesus by practicing self-giving love through faithful presence. And this kind of church, declares and demonstrates this divine love among themselves and all their neighbors, from the blue-collar workers to the people holding positions of power. Why do I say this? Because, y'all, God's love is not just about individual conversion. It's about transforming all of us together. It's a love that possesses the power to change society by ushering in an alternative society we call the church, one of equity and inclusion. God's love leads to a transformation of individuals whose way of life comes together and transforms a society by the power of God's Spirit. And so what you and I have to decide, stay with me, what you and I and Tammy and John and Sherry, what we all have to decide is will I be a fan or a follower? And we need to remember from Matthew's story that in time, how I answer this question will be evidenced by the actions I do, beliefs I hold, ethics I promote, and the agendas I support. And it'll include my personal family decisions, my financial decisions, and yes, my political decisions. To be a follower of Jesus to learn how to submit all of these things to his kingship, even if it requires an all-out renovation for my transformation. Last story. This Writing all this reminded me of a story James McLennan tells about Clarence Jordan and his wife Florence, who along with their friends Martin and Mabel England founded what was called the Koinonia Community in my home state of Georgia back in 1942. When they founded this community in 1942, they meant it to be an interracial farm with the expressed purpose, and I quote, as a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. It was a place in Georgia in 1942 where black, brown, and white Americans of all races and ethnicities could come to live together and participate in long-term work programs. 
So in the early 1950s, it's said that Clarence asked his brother, Robert Jordan, who would later be a state senator and a justice on the Georgia Supreme Court, to represent Koinonia Farm legally. And I think this conversation that they have reveals the difference between being a disciple of Jesus and those who simply admire Jesus. His brother replied, Bob, Clarence, I can't do that. You know my political aspirations. Why, if I represented you, I might lose my job, my house, everything I've got. Well, we might lose everything too, Bob. Yeah, it's different for you. Why is it different? I remember it seems to me that you and I joined the church the same Sunday as boys. I expect when we came forward, the preacher asked me about the same question he did you. He asked me, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, yes. What did you say, Bob? Clarence, I followed Jesus up to a point. Could that point by any chance be the cross? That's right, that's right. I follow him to the cross, but not on the cross. I'm not getting myself crucified. Clarence looked at him and said, then I don't believe you're a disciple. You're an admirer of Jesus, but not a disciple of his. I think you ought to go back to church you believe to and tell them you're an admirer, not a disciple. It's a tough story. Clarence was willing to sacrifice everything for what he believed to be the equity and equality of all people. Robert was only willing to do what was expedient and didn't cost him what his white privilege afforded him, despite what his dark skin Jesus required. Some things haven't changed. But it can. And it begins with you and me. Will I be a follower or a fan? Will you be a follower or a fan? Love, a King Jesus not only wants to be our Savior, but our Lord. And though He will come inside and, and live inside our hearts, He will not live inside of our preferences. He, he wants all of me and all of you as He has given us all of Himself. He wants all of my love and all of your love as He has given us all of His love. He, he wants my affections and your affections as you and I have all of His. He wants my time and, and your time as He has given us eternity. He wants my priorities and your priorities as He's made us a priority of His promises. He, he wants my relationships and your relationships as He's given us a relationship with the triune God. He'll exchange your sin for His righteousness, your slavery for His freedom, your death for His life. But the experience of these divine exchanges only comes and we learn to exchange our allegiances for an allegiance to Him. When I exchange my throne and crown, and you exchange your throne and crown for His throne and crown, even if we struggle all along the way. Beloved, believing in Jesus is different from believing Jesus. Fans believe in Jesus. Followers believe Jesus. And it's demonstrated by the way they live their lives. See, the good news is that King Jesus can be trusted completely. He's proven it. And if you can trust him with your eternity, 
surely you and I can trust him with our lives. Beloved, our pursuit of happiness and security often becomes more important than our pursuit of truth. There's nothing more true than the reality of Jesus' life, cross and resurrection and ascension as King Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we've, connect, we've confessed this. And it's most often our pursuit of happiness and security that turns us into fans. It is our pursuit of the divine truth that leads us to become followers. Because Jesus said, He is the truth the way, and the life. Beloved, pursue him because he's pursuing you. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.